as we begin, as we're looking at Isaiah 55, and I want to add, begin by asking, what is the greatest, most significant invitation that you have ever received? Was it a wedding invitation? A birthday party? Was it an exclusive event? You know, Jay-Z's white party? I don't, I don't know. Was it a personal outing with a particular person? Is it an invitation to accept a desired job or uh, an invitation to attend a university or college that you had, you had dreamt of going? Whatever it was, I want you to try to remember that event. What, that moment in your life, what made it so meaningful? Why does that invitation, and then the event itself, why has it impacted your life? And what would it, your life be like had you not received it? We're going to continue to look at the servant songs in Isaiah. And again, this week we're looking at Isaiah 55, which is a glorious and beautiful invitation to us from the Lord. And while it's not specifically one of the servant songs, uh, technically speaking, it is a message that God gives. It's a culmination of those songs. I want to make note of this because we're skipping over the fourth servant song, and we're doing so intentionally. The fourth servant song is in Isaiah 52, 13, all the way through the end of 53. And that one, we're saving that one, and we're going to look at that one on Good Friday, uh, our Good Friday service. But in that last, just to catch us up, in that last servant song, 52 to 53... What we actually see is that the servant is going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be glorified. But the way he, he is glorified is not often the way that we would imagine. He actually is going to be raised up, but first experience humiliation. And he does so not for his sins. He endures suffering, not for his sins, but for his people. In that fourth servant song, we actually find the, the fam these famous verses, and you've probably heard them before. It's, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The servant has brought about our redemption. He's opened the door for this invitation that we get this morning. And if we were actually to look at all the, the four servant songs in progression, we see that the servant is bringing the comfort that God has promised to his people who are in exile... But it's not without cost to himself. It is, it is as we even just, as Nina just read, it's, it's free for us to, to come to him, but it's, it's not free to God. It's a cost to himself. And uh, in the first song, in Isaiah 42, he's going to establish justice, even though he's going to be disregarded and overlooked in his time. In 49, he's going to bring the Israelites home from exile, as well as welcoming all the nations back to God's kingdom even though in his time, he, his work is going to look like a failure. Last week, Pastor Eric looked at chapter 50, and the servant is going to establish the way of life according to God's word, 
but the servant will experience great suffering. And again, in the last song, uh, 52 to 53, the servant is glorified and exalted as king over all, but the way of his exaltation is through humiliation. The servant will take on the sins of his people in order that he might wash them clean, that he would purchase their redemption. This is the comfort that God is inviting his people into to experience. Forgiveness, restored fellowship with with himself and one another, a restored future. So on account of the work of the servant, we come to Isaiah 55, which again is one of the most beautiful and warming invitations of all the Bible. In fact, it's so warm and rich that the writer of Revelation actually draws these images from Isaiah hundreds of years later because it's hard to improve upon these words. And so as we look at this invitation in this chapter 55, I just have three questions for us. First, what is it the Lord's inviting us into? Two, what keeps us from receiving this invitation? And then three, how can we begin to embrace this invitation? As we come to the beginning of the passage, we see that God's really insistent on us accepting this invitation, to to welcoming us. He says, come, four times. Come, everyone who thirsts. It's not exclusive to just one or two. It's everyone who's thirsty. Come to the waters. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price, money and without price. The invitation is to be nourished on the incredible abundance of the Lord's provision. Throughout this passage, the Lord extends this invitation in, 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 in a multifaceted way. And from the very first verse, we see that this invitation is to know the safety and the bounty of God's kingdom. To know the safety and the bounty of God's kingdom. We're invited into a land where the water, the milk, the wine, the rich fruit are so abundant that it's And God is so generous in giving them, he's like, there's not even a price tag on them. To have milk and wine without cost means that the pastures and the vineyards are are overrun with flourishing. That they're not at risk to be plundered or ruined by the weather. It is a land that is lush and protected. Have you ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Anyone? All right. Here, I have a little, if you haven't, that's okay. Maslow was a, a, a psychologist who wrote in the 1940s that humans have needs, but he, the needs arrange themselves in the form of a pyramid. So at the base of the pyramids are the, the, our most fundamental needs, our physiological needs, like air, water, food, shelter, sleep. And then once we have that, then we can actually look to have our, our safety needs met. And and so each layer is dependent on the one below it. And I think it's incredible that the Lord, in this passage, where does he start? He starts with being thirsty, with being hungry. He goes, I know what your most fundamental need is, and I have so much for you that I'm I'm, 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 I'm inviting you to feast on what you deeply need the most. 
The Lord is inviting us to experience the very foundational needs of life that flow from his hand. For the Israelites, they were in exile in Babylon. They were away from their home. The, the, the promised land that was promised to be flowing with milk and honey, uh, once again, a picture of flourishing, they were away from it. Their song, and Eric even mentioned that Psalm 42, as, as, a, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs after you. They were so removed from God. They, they felt that so, so distant from their home. God says, I'm going to bring you back home, and I'm going to supply your needs. Water, for you to thirst, for your, the longings of your heart to be satiated with rich food. Again, I, I think there's a, a physical sense here, but it's also a deeply spiritual sense that the, that the deepest longings of our heart, God goes, I know exactly what they, need, they are. That's what Jesus even says to the Samaritan woman that we read earlier. The thirst, the, the water that Jesus gives goes more than just to, to, to quench a, a, a thirsty mouth. It is, it is, it is water that, that refreshes your very being. It is an invitation to have all that is necessary for life. Not, and all of it for free. His kingdom is so abundant and he is so gracious that he willingly gives access to our most fundamental needs. That is what the Lord is inviting us into, to to find in him the deepest longings of our soul that they would be satisfied. Have you ever been really thirsty in August and not have water? You know, you start to get like the cotton mouth, your tongue starts to stick to the roof of your mouth. And then you get a cold glass of water and you can just kind of feel it like hit the top of your mouth and then go all the way down into your stomach. Do you, you know that feeling where it just cools you all the way down to your core? The Lord is inviting us to know that, not just in a physical sense, but a deeply, deeply visceral, emotional, spiritual way. Come and be satisfied. When we have those needs, Medi says in verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. It is an invitation to not just go through the motions of your daily life. We don't have to bounce around and trying to figure out who we really are, wrestle to discover our identity. We don't have to ask, do I really belong? Rather, this invitation is an invitation to be fully alive, fully present, fully available in our relationships, to both give and receive love and what we have to offer. To, to truly live means that we are, aren't burdened by the consequences of our sin or the sin that, sins that have been committed against us. The Israelites were reminded in their exile that they were not free. 
Their lives were limited. They were reminded that their attempts to live according to their wisdom and best ideas didn't actually liberate them. They enslaved them. The Lord invites them to experience life that is connected to the vine. Life that is rooted and dependent upon the God who made us, who loves us, who knows us, who sustains us. It is the gift of, again, being truly ourselves in the moment in who we are in God. It's it's connected to the very source of life. That is what it means to be truly alive. So So many of us live anxious about the future or replaying the past that we can ne- we, we're not able to be present. The Lord says, I don't want less for you. I want more. And this is an invitation to step into that fullness. It's an invitation. Also, the second part of verse 3 into God's everlasting covenant. God goes, the way that I'm actually going to give you this life is something that will not fail. It is my very promise that I've established. God is establishing a new covenant that is not based on works, but based on grace. He says in verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure and steadfast love For David, he goes on to say, behold, I I made him a witness. He's talking about David to the people, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God is establishing this new promise with his people, not based on their own ability, but upon the perfect life and death of his servant, the Messiah, Jesus, who is the heir of David. It's interesting that the covenant, he doesn't, when the Israelites would have heard covenant, one of the first things they often would have thought about was Moses, right? And that was the covenant that God gave to to the Israelites at Sinai. He says, he brought them out of slavery and then gives them the law and says, hey, you're my people, here's how you Walk in, in the way. But he doesn't talk about the covenant with Moses as if it's, if it's up to the Israelites to keep it in their own works. Rather, he reminds them that he also made a covenant promise to David. That he said, there is going to be one that comes from your line who will sit on the throne forever and he will establish my reign forever and ever. And what we see is this As David was a witness, he proclaimed God's covenant. He also was a leader and a commander. He he led and protected his people. That Jesus is going to be a better David who does that. But also, he's going to call not just Israel and protect them. He goes, I'm going to call everyone from around and I'm going to welcome them. And they will actually hear my voice and come running because they know that I am the good king. This is who the king is. This is what the servant has done. This is the new covenant. Not by our works, but by the finished work of Jesus. He's established it. We're going we're to remember it together. This new covenant that God says, when you listen, when you incline your ear to me, 
There is nothing that will ever snatch you out of my hand. I am your leader and commander. I am the one who called you and keeps you. Because I was glorified, Jesus saying, through me you will be glorified too. That we are welcomed in to the family of God. That's the invitation. I've had a lot of conversations with a bunch of you. And deep down, I think when we talk about God's grace and his sufficiency for us, many of us believe in God's grace and his sufficiency. Particularly for his grace is sufficient, his forgiveness is enough for others. But it isn't for me. We often go, yeah, I I know that God's grace is good, but it's not enough for me. In this passage, the Lord invites you to personally know his compassion, his unrelenting compassion, and his full pardon. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let, look at this, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know what I love about this? The Lord is not shy about this. He does not qualify this. He doesn't say, well, it's for you, but I'm reluctant to give it to you. It almost seems like the Lord is like bursting at the seams to share this good news with you. That the Lord invites you to know personally his compassion and his full pardon. I'd invite you to sit in that for a minute. If it's helpful, close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. We're embodied souls, so if you want to put your arms on your shoulders, what would it feel like to feel the the warm embrace of God's compassion towards you? It might feel like the warmth of the sun on a, a nice spring day. The coolness of a breeze. It is the Lord's compassion that he sent his servant to accomplish our full pardon. The Lord has compassion on us because Jesus' work is finished. He is separated. When when we turn, when we forsake our wicked way, when we return to the Lord in faith, He says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I remove your sin from you. There's no qualifier. You know, I I, I often have explained and and think about sin this way, and and often the way I think about how God 
in my own wrong thinking, I think that God keeps a book. But, you know, for those soccer fans or football fans, whatever, um, you know, referees in soccer, when somebody gets a penalty, it's a yellow card, right? It's a warning. Now, what do they do? They take out their little book and they write their number in it, right? So they keep playing. Well, you're allowed to keep playing. But when that, if you make another, if you commit another penalty, a second yellow card comes up and he goes, oh, you're in the book, now you're out. I actually think that's often how we treat, think about God's pardon of us. It's like, he said he's pardoned us, but did he really? This passage says, no, no, no. There's no book that he's writing it down in. Jesus has paid it all. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. God actually means that. That's not just pleasantry or a Hallmark card. That is fact. And what this means for us, that we, that we would know personally the compassion and full pardon of God, is something even more foundational than what Maslow had in mind. Because more foundational than eating or drinking or shelter, we need and we long for a restored relationship with God who made us. So out, and this is what he's accomplished for us. And he invites us into, without the servant, without his, this new covenant, without his compassion and full pardon, we couldn't have the deepest longings of our soul satisfied. But he goes, I've taken care of all of it. He's thought through all the steps. And at the bottom of that is that, uh, that pyramid is a right relationship with God, and that's what he invites you into. And when we experience that, ultimately we see that it's an invitation to joy and peace. So we see in verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Last time I preached in uh, Isaiah a couple weeks back, I made mention that in Isaiah 1, when the people were incident, Isaiah is calling the people to repentance one of the things he does is he calls the creation like into God's courtroom and says, look, creation is going to testify against you. Now, we see when all things are restored that the creation celebrates the goodness, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. That the, that the creation actually joins in the praise of what he has restored that we get to partake of that joy and that peace. You see, at the end of the day, the Lord's plan has always been for us to dwell in his presence where there is fullness of joy and perfect peace. That word here, some of you may have heard of it before, but it's called shalom. It's more than just like the absence of strife or uh, noise. At the end of the day, Kids are going crazy. We have a lot of them. Uh, you got to hide in. You're like, I just need some peace. It's different than that. 
This is a fullness. It's an invitation to life where joy is not just an empty concept, but a personal reality. It is both a deep feeling and a way of acting in the world. It is free of fear and insecurity. It is the gift of knowing who you are regardless of the circumstances. It is to be invited into the very fullness of God to experience not just tranquility of body and soul, but also into a restored world, which we experience in part now, but will ultimately in perfect fullness when Christ returns. That's the invitation. The Lord is inviting us into nothing less than to enter into true and lasting, abundant life that he has longed for his people to to have from the very beginning, but we lost. This is an invitation to come home. So the second question. What keeps us from receiving this invitation? Would you take a look at verse 2? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and then the Israelites were taken into exile, Jerusalem was actually threatened to be overthrown by the Assyrians. And the Lord protected Jerusalem and the king at the time, King Hezekiah, and and, and Jerusalem from being destroyed by the Assyrians. After the threat was gone and Assyria left, Hezekiah sought to build an alliance with the Babylonians. And you can read about this in Isaiah 39. He welcomed delegates from Babylon into the treasury of Jeru- uh, in the temple. As if to show them all of the riches of Israel and say, look, this is what can fund our alliance. There's going to be other people that are going to come for us too. And Babylon, you're the next big guy on the block. Can, you, can we partner together? Hezekiah was seeking to build a partnership where Babylon would protect and come to Jerusalem's aid if Assyria or another tried anything. He had tried to buy what God had already promised them for free. He was trying to buy presence and protection. It didn't work. Rather, it backfired. The Babylonians knew exactly what was in the storehouse. Have you ever paid for something that was actually free? I think it is so stupid that airlines try to make you sell it. They sell you a ticket and then act like you have to pay for an additional fee to buy a seat. It's like if I bought a ticket, I bought the seat. I remember being on a spirit flight and the way that they send these emails is like, you got to get your seat. I remember this family bought like nine seats. There were 25 people, including the crew, on the flight. The guy's like, they said I had to buy. It's like, you already had the seat. That's what a ticket is. We, it's stupid, and we feel dumb when we buy, pay for something that is already free. These Israelites tried to buy their protection. They became like the nations around them, trying to fit in and to be accepted. They trusted their own abilities and the resources. 
their connections to provide for their fundamental needs. But friends, it was futile. They relied on things that could not ultimately satisfy them. But if we're honest, it, we, we know that it's not just the Israelites that do this. We do too. If you want, you can turn back to the very beginning of the Bible, but if you don't, that's okay. In the very beginning, God created man and woman and placed them in the garden. And this is Genesis 1 and 2. And in that place, they were perfectly connected to God, to one another and the world in which they lived. They lived dependently on God as they were meant to be, and he provided everything. In the garden, listen to this. This is so important to remember. They had love. They had the full love of God and then the love of one another. They were naked and unashamed in each other's presence. They, and in, in that, we see that they also had connection. I've been going into the city more regularly. It is the loneliest place I think I've ever been for where there are 8 million people going about their business. We long for connection. They had it. Safety. And in the garden, they were safe. They had provision. God met their need. They had meaning and purpose. They were to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And if we think about that, I, I love this, to think about this this way. That they were made in the image of God, so as they were fruitful and multiply, what did they fill the earth with? The image of God. That was their purpose. They had acceptance. They were naked and they were unashamed. They knew who they were. They were comfortable in who they were. Uh, when Adam is shown Eve for the very first time. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I've heard one pastor say, he's like, oh yeah. There's joy. What they put their hands to flourished. They knew who they were and they were truly free. But in Genesis 3, we know that things don't stay that way. They believed the lie of a serpent and disobeyed God by eating from the one tree that God had told them not to eat from. In so doing, they rejected their humanity. They tried to be like God. They rejected their dependence on him. They believed that they had a better plan. They were trying to spend their money on things that would not satisfy. And immediately they felt shame and fear and insecurity, a loss of connection. What did they do? They hide. They sewed together fig leaves to make clothes in order to cover their nakedness. They also turn on each other, blaming each other. Do you see what they were doing? They were there spending their money on things that were not food and laboring on things that would not satisfy. They were trying in their own strength and their own resource to get what only God could provide for them. Why do they hide? Because they want safety. Why do they cover themselves? They want to feel unashamed. Why do they blame each other? They want to feel innocence again. 
They're trying to get what only God gives in their own strength. Friends, isn't this what we do too? We have a bit of an Oprah moment here. In the front pocket of your seat, reach in there and you should find money. And if you don't, my son Trevor, he's got some extra, so if you can just raise your hand. You should find money in your pocket. If you don't have, yeah, if you have, it, it, some of them are extra, but please grab it, hold it in your hand. I want you to hold it. And if you don't have it, raise your hand and Trevor will come over. Everyone should have one. All right. Here's what I want us to do. I want you to hold in your hand like this. I want you to look at it. And as you do, I want you to think about ways that you are spending your resources, ways that you're working, ways that you're striving in your own strength to buy what God is offering you for free. Take a look at it. Just fix your gaze on it. What am I spending my money and my resource on? What am I laboring after? Maybe you're laboring in such a way that you can, so you can build your portfolio that you'll be able to buy your way out of trouble. You're seeking your safety and the strength of your financial statements. Maybe you grew up without, without much and your insecurity and shame have driven you to make sure that no matter what, I will not need anyone for anything. So you labor and you work to provide for yourself. Perhaps you're looking to your wealth not just for safety, but for status. If you can afford that luxury car or, the, or that neighborhood, you will finally prove to yourself and others that you made it. What you wear, where you shop, where you went to school, what you do defines you. You are running after identity. Friends, maybe it's just comfort. You spend your money and you labor to build a safe little kingdom where you will be warm and unbothered. You strive to have every convenience so that you'll never have to feel uncomfortable. So you isolate yourself. You push relationships away that are hard. You run from conflict. Maybe you're laboring to keep everyone in your life happy. You want connections, approval so badly that you have run yourself ragged to make sure that no one is upset or left out. Similarly, at work or at school, you put yourself under the gun to perform at all costs. Because if you make a mistake, you aren't among the top performers 
you'll let everyone down. You'll actually prove what you've thought all along, I'm just a failure. So you work just to justify that you matter. Maybe it's the shame and guilt you experience from your past so that all you do is you work to numb yourself. So you self-medicate with alcohol or pills. You escape into video games or social media or porn because I don't want to feel. So I run and I chase the numb. Maybe it's you that you're laboring to fit in with this group or be seen by that person because then you will matter. Parents, you are striving to make sure that your kids are seen as everyone as the right kind of kid. Friends, none of these things in and of themselves are bad, necessarily, ultimately. But when they become ultimate things, when they become the things that drive us, you know, our jobs or identity or relationships, when they become the ultimate thing, they displace God. We act just like Adam and Eve, trying to get in our own power what God offers us for free. What are the things that you think, if I just have that, I will be okay? I'll be enough. I'll be secure. Said differently, and I want you to look at, look at this money. If I lose this, my life doesn't make sense anymore. What is that thing? What are you spending your money on to satisfy your soul? What are you trying to buy in in your own power that you can only get from God, and, and which keeps you from receiving the invitation that he's offering you for free. Consider the money that's in your hand. And when you think about what you're spending your money and labor on, what, that is what you're trusting in your own efforts to bring you joy and connection and meaning and love and acceptance, I invite you to squeeze it tightly in your hands. Close it like this. Make a... Hard. With a closed fist. I want you to clench. And think about what you're aware of in this moment. I know some of you think this is weird and I'm not going to hold it tight. But this is how we live, friends. Hands closed. If you're really doing it, maybe your forearms are starting to burn a little bit. Maybe you're aware that while your hands are clenched, you cannot hold anything else. And maybe you feel silly squeezing fake money, but also that you've been pursuing something that you know from experience doesn't ultimately satisfy, but you keep going after it anyway. It's like the monopoly money that's in your hand. You're playing a game to accrue money that can't actually be spent in a way that satisfies your heart. Whatever you're feeling, I invite you to just become aware of it. Don't dismiss it or condemn it or go, oh, this is weird. Instead, become aware of what's going on in you. 
in your mind and your heart. And as you do, look back at, the, at the, our passage and consider how we can actually open up our hands to receive the radical invitation of God. This is what it says. First, we have to loosen our grip. We can't hold anything else until we begin to loosen our grip. Even in that passage, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not food? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In, in, in seven, in six and seven, we see, seek the Lord while he may be found and let the wicked forsake his way. In other words, open your hand a little bit. The Lord is not beating us against the head. He's not shaming or belittling. He's not scolding or manipulating. Instead, he graciously, will, willingly, joyfully invites us to know his compassion and his abundant pardon. Throughout the, the passage are verbs that describe how we can turn from trusting our own efforts and receive the Lord's invitation. Come and buy without money. We can let it drop. Listen diligently to the Lord. Stop listening to our low and, and, and insufficient ideas and turn our ears to listen to the one who made us and knows us. Delight in his provision. This isn't a shaming word. He goes, come feast on me. Incline your ear to the Lord's words. Pay attention. Behold to his servant who has established a new covenant. Come close, he says. Seek the Lord. Come to me. I won't send you away. There isn't a list of things that we have to do to prove ourselves or get right in our own strength. We don't work to prove we deserve God's invitation. Rather, it is letting go of our self-centered ways and turning to the Lord and relying on the finished work of his servant. And this sounds so counterproductive because we've learned how to pursue. We, we, we've been spending money on things that don't satisfy our whole lives. So it seems so counterproductive. And that's why this verse is in here, verse 8 and 9. He goes, do you know that my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways? He goes, I know you, have, you think you have a really great idea, but guess what? Mine is going to blow yours out of the water. And it isn't, again, to shame. He's saying, do you realize how immeasurable my grace is towards you? He goes, I want to give you far more. He's unrelenting in showing his compassion. He goes, come into the river of my grace that you would know the depths of my love. For as heaven are as high as, higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your ways. And it's so funny, in, in, in 1 Corinthians, God goes, I actually like to th turn things upside down. Because the, way, the reason I do the things I do is to, to shame the wise and to, to, to shame the strong. Those who think they can do it on their own, I flip it on its head so that you'll see how kind I am. When we rely on our own abilities and resources, because we think in doing so we can get for ourselves the deep desires of our heart, the identity 
security, peace, connection, forgiveness, love, joy, meaning. The more we try in our own efforts, the more elusive or conditional we experience the fruit of our labor. Friend who's been spending money in their labor to build their portfolio, portfolio to feel safe and How's it going? Who is running themselves ragged to please everyone? How's it going? Who's exhausted? It doesn't work. They don't lead to freedom, but stress, imposter syndrome, fear. But the Lord's ways are better than ours. His invitation is a call to come home, to find peace and pardon and love and connection that we lost back in the garden. He says, the invitation is to become fully alive, fully present to me and my grace. It is to be connected to the one who is life itself. It is to restore our humanity. If we surrender and come home, we no longer have to fight for our identity, but rather rest, we can rest in it that you are a beloved child of God. You no longer have to fight or be overwhelmed with anxiety to be in control, but can live each day knowing that the Lord is at work in the world and in me. We don't have to pretend to have it all together, but can rest in the full forgiveness of God and his unqualified delight in you, which frees you to take the mask off to become present to yourself and to others. And as a result, we can actually have real connection with God and one another now. God's so pleased to do this. Verses 12, 11, and 12, he's like, I'm so stoked. And here's my word. He goes, I don't say anything that I don't make happen. He puts himself on the hook to make good on this invitation. He goes, every word that I speak comes back and fulfills exactly what I intended for it. So the invitation is for you to come home. And one of the very practical ways we can do that, one of the practical ways that we can come home or or just step into this invitation, even this morning, is by coming to the Lord's table. God was so serious about this invitation that he did not spare his very son, but accomplished our salvation, our redemption. He put on his son the transgress our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace. We are healed by the very wounds of Jesus and are invited to come home that we might live. So we're going to come to the table. I'm going to invite the band up in a moment. And here's what I want you to do to prepare yourself. Think about what you've been spending your money on, what you've been laboring after, what you've been squeezing. Maybe the invitation is just loosen up just a little bit, that grace may come in.
And as you come to the table, see this is what grace is. It is Christ's body broken for you. It's Christ's blood shed for you. It is the Lord of the universe saying, come to my table. Friends, this is a family meal. This is for those who have trusted in Christ. This is for those who have turned from their wicked ways and trusted in Christ. If you have never trusted in Christ, this meal is not to be exclusive or or mean. This meal isn't for you. Rather, we would invite you to partake of Christ. Consider what you're holding, what you're pursuing, and receive the invitation to come home by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Father, we thank you for your kind and merciful invitation that you invite us to come, everyone who thirsts. The reality is, is we are all thirsty. We also acknowledge that we often spend our money trying to quench our thirst with with our own efforts. But we also know that they don't satisfy. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be disappointed in our own efforts. That you would show how weak and small and little they actually are. And that we would see you, this invitation and the finished work, as beautiful and big and overwhelmingly glorious and gracious toward us. Father, I pray as we come to the table that you would allow us to really evaluate our hearts and then also celebrate the salvation, the redemption, the full pardon that you've accomplished for us through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.